0: the end of Joseph's life and reflecting on Joseph's story and um, we have this this wonderful statement I said verse 10 is verse, verse 20 As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So it's this idea of the sovereign hand of God right? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God had a different intention behind it all. He meant it for good. That's a good theme to fix this up for Mary Rowlandson. We, we don't know a whole lot about her before the year 1676. Um, we're not even sure what year she was born. Uh, we think she was around 40 when the events we're going to talk about happened. And so uh, we think maybe around 1635, 1636 is when she was born, but we don't know that. Her father was a wealthy man who had been part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Uh, he later moved his family to Lancaster. And it was here that Mary met and married a minister whose name was Joseph Rowlandson, and together they had three children. Uh, the oldest, Joseph, was probably around 14 years old when the town was attacked. Um, Mary was 10. And Sarah was six, and Mary herself was 40 uh, when the town was attacked. The attack of their town was part of the short-lived but very violent war uh, that took place between the Wampanoag Indians and the New England colonists. So the Wampanoags were those American Indians that were involved in the first Thanksgiving Uh, They were the Indians that the colonists first came into contact with in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Um, What's often not known is that the relationship between the colonists and the Wampanoags uh, was regularly volatile and often hostile. Um, So at this time that we're talking about, three Wampanoag tribesmen had just recently been executed in Plymouth for crimes. Um, and so under the leadership of Metacomet, who was known as King Philip by the colonists, the Wampanoags did a retaliatory attack. Uh, they wanted to attack the colonists because of the killing of three of their, of their braves. And so they attacked several colonial settlements, settlements uh, between 1675 and 1676, and so this turned into an all-out war. The Wampanoags would attack the colonists, and then the colonists would attack the Wampanoags. Uh, we're told that when the fighting was over, more than 1,200 houses had been burned, about 600 English colonials were dead, and more than 3,000 American Indians had been killed. The war was later known as King Philip's War, and it ended with King Philip met a uh, he was killed, and his family was put into slavery and taken to a foreign a foreign land. Now, Mary herself wrote an account about her being taken captive by the Wampanoags, and it was published in 1682. Um, this work was her testimony of how God strengthened her and sustained her During the 70 days that she was being held hostage by these American Indians, it became very popular. It was widely read both in America and in England. Uh, We don't have any surviving copies of the first edition, but a second edition was printed by Samuel Green in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Here was the title. Remember, they had long titles back then? Prepare yourself. Here was the title. I don't even know how they fit it on the page. The sovereignty and goodness of God, together with the faithfulness of his promises displayed, being a narrative of the captivity and restoration of Mrs. Mary Rowlandson, commended by her to all that desires to know the lord's doings to and dealings with her especially to her dear children and relations the second edition corrected and amended written by her own hand for her private use and now made public at the earnest desire of some friends and for the benefit of the afflicted of the afflicted deuteronomy 32:39 see now that i even i am he there is no god with me i kill and i make alive i wound and i heal neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand So that was the full title of this this work. Now, Joseph Rowlandson, her minister husband, he was out of town when the town was attacked and the family was attacked. It was February 20th, 1676. Uh, The Indians arrived around sunrise, and upon realizing that their town was under attack, the residents of Lancaster each gathered into their garrisons Uh, Mary's house happened to be one of the three garrisons. And she describes the attack uh, as she saw it. So here's her description. We looked out. Several houses were burning and the smoke ascending to heaven. There were five persons taken in one house, the father and the mother and a suckling child. And they were knocked on the head. The other two they took and carried away alive. There were two others who, being out of their garrison upon some occasion, were set upon. One was knocked on the head. The other escaped, and, there, and another there who was running along was shot and wounded and fell down. He begged of them his life, promising them money, but they would not hearken to him, but knocked him in the head. They stripped him naked and split open his bowels. Another, seeing many of the Indians about his barn, ventured and went out, but he was quickly shot down. Being knocked in the head is the way she talks about the the being scalped by the Indians. In Mary's house, there was a number of family members besides her own children. And there were some other residents of the town that had all gathered there. Uh, Several had been wounded even before they made it into her house. Uh, She talked about how the folks there in her house were, quote, wallowing in their blood. Uh, The Indians set that house on fire. Uh, The roof began to burn over their heads... Uh, And their their only choice was to leave the house. But, of course, a group of Indians was waiting as soon as they walked outside the door. She said, "'But out we must go, the fire increasing and coming along behind us, roaring, the Indians gaping before us with their guns, spears, and hatchets to devour us. No sooner were we out of the house, but my brother-in-law, being before wounded and defending his house, in or near the throat, fell down dead.' Whereas the Indians scornfully shouted and hallowed, they were presently upon him, stripping off his clothes, the bullets flying thick. One went through my side, and the other, as would seem, through the bowels and hand of the dear child in my arms. Of the 37 people that had taken refuge in Mary's house, 12 were killed, 24 were taken captive, and only one escaped. Uh, Mary, with Sarah still in her arms, was taken away. Uh, her two children were taken a different way. So they were split up and divided, she and the baby from the two other children. Uh, being taken to an Indian camp, Mary was immediately sold by the Indian that had captured her to another named Quinnipin. Uh, Quinnipin had three squalls. He had three Indian wives, and Mary was made a servant to one of his wives, a lady named Witamu, The next 70 days that she spent in captivity were spent in a continuous pattern of traveling and resting, traveling and resting. The group would travel across rivers, they would travel across swamps, they would travel in the wilderness to a particular place, and they would stay for a few days. Sometimes the tribesmen would attack a nearby colonial town, and then the group would move on again. In general, the group was slowly moving north to meet with King Philip for half of the captivity. And then the second half of her time, they were returning back south. Ultimately, the Indians intended to sell Mary and to sell the other captives back to the colonists for ransom money. So they were being kept for ransom money. And in the end, that's what happened. That's how she ended up being freed was through ransom money. The first few days were spent in cold and loneliness uh, Mary sat on her knees day after day, uh, eating nothing, having nothing, and uh, her child Sarah slowly uh, dying in her arms. There were a few other colonists in the camp that had been either captured in Lancaster or during earlier raids on other towns. And so one of those colonists showed her how to use the leaves of oak trees to wrap her wounds and to try and bring some healing to her injuries. She recounts that the Indians paid very little attention to her uh, except to threaten her and her child with death. Uh, She speaks of being made to travel during these days of sorrow. Here's what she says. I was made to travel with them into the vast and desolate wilderness. I knew not where. One One of the Indians carried my poor, wounded babe upon a horse. It went moaning all along, I shall die, I shall die. I went on foot after it with sorrow that cannot be expressed. At length I took it off the horse and carried it in my arms till my strength failed and I fell down it. They set me upon a horse with my wounded child in my lap. And there being no furniture upon the horse's back, as we were going down a steep hill, we both fell over the horse's head. And they, like inhumane creatures, laughed and rejoiced to see it. Uh, nine days after the attack on the town... Child Sarah uh, died in her arms. Mary said, I cannot but take notice how at another time I could not bear to be in the room where a dead person was. But now the case is changed. I must and could lie down by my dead babe side by side all the night after. I have thought since of the wonderful goodness of God to me in preserving me in the use of my reason and senses during that distressed time that I did not use wicked and violent means to end my own miserable life. So she's saying there that you know, it was a time of such great distress and despair that she thinks it's only the grace of God that she didn't try and take her own life. Sarah, her youngest daughter, was buried there in, in the wilderness. Uh, in the early days of her captivity, Mary encountered her 10-year-old daughter on a few different occasions. The younger Mary had been taken captive by one Indian and then sold to another Indian for the price of a gun. Uh, Understandably, the 10-year-old girl was scared. She was sad. Uh, She broke into tears when she saw her mother approaching. But the Indians forbade the older Mary from approaching the younger Mary. Her son Joseph was allowed by his captors to visit his mother from time to time and to let her know that he was all right." Violence and death surrounded Mary. Uh, the Indians would return from their attacks and they would be whooping and hollering. They would show off the scalps that they had obtained as trophies. Uh, they would have joyful dances to celebrate their victories over the colonists. Some of the Indians would take the clothes that they had gotten off of their victims and they would walk around in the English clothes. Uh, another would wear a necklace that showcased his collection of human fingers that he had gathered off the bodies. Uh, Mary particularly remembered one person from the attack on Lancaster, who had been knocked in the head by a hatchet, uh, stripped naked, and yet was still crawling up and down. In the camp, she met a woman named Jocelyn, who, not long after having a baby in the camp, was too stripped naked, placed in the center of a group of dancing, singing Indians, and then was killed along with the Indian and with the, the infant uh, that was in her in her arms. And Mary herself was regularly threatened. Uh, She was told by one of the Indians that her husband Joseph had already met another woman and remarried, that he presumed her to be dead and had moved on. Another told her, well, if your husband comes back to, to buy you from the Indians, we'll just kill him along with you. Another told her that her husband had already been killed and that he had himself watched a group of fellow Indians cook him over a fire and eat his body. And so they would tell her things like that to torment her. But she says not all of them were cruel. Uh, Many of the Indians actually welcomed Mary into their wigwams. They would offer her food from time to time. Uh, She was regularly asked to knit different types of clothing for the Indians, who then in return would give her some shillings where she could go and buy food from other Indians. On occasion, she was confined to a particular wigwam, uh, but other times she was given more freedom, sometimes even allowed to travel a few miles from one camp to another camp to visit her son or to visit her, her daughter. And she did say that she was never once sexually abused by any of the Indians. Interestingly, Mary became aware that sometimes the Indians that were the kindest to her and gave her food were the same ones that would return from the attacks jubilant with the clothes and the trophies from the colonists that they had slaughtered. Though the squall she was made to serve, Weetamu, was often cruel to her. Uh, Mary's master, Quinnipin, the husband, he was typically kind. Uh, she called him the best friend that I had of any of the Indians. Also, an amazing act of kindness that Mary said was owing to the mercy of God, Uh, one of the Indians returned from one of the attacks on a town with a Bible among his plunder. And when she asked for it, he gave it to her. And so Mary referred to that Bible as my guide by day and my pillow by night. And uh, she would sleep on it at, at night. So Mary was finally sold back to her husband at the cost of 20 pounds. And they were reunited in Boston. Since Mary's husband had lost all that they owned in the attack on Lancaster, uh, the money for her ransom was generously given by a number of people who helped them out there in Boston. Mary was very happy to be reunited to her husband, uh, but still very worried about the fate of their two children that were still alive. Uh, During this time of restoration, she encountered her brother-in-law, whose son William had been killed just moments Um, before Mary and Sarah had been shot. Her brother-in-law asked Mary if she knew where his sister, his wife, had been taken. And she had been shot while still in Mary's house during the attack and had been burnt so badly by the fire that no one had been able to recognize her body. And so it was up to Mary to break the bad news to her brother-in-law that he had actually buried his own wife and just hadn't known it uh, because he hadn't been able to recognize her body. Well, during this time of praying and seeking word about their children, Joseph still regularly filled the pulpits of local churches as they traveled from town to town trying to get word about where their kids had been taken. Finally, they received word that their son Joseph had been taken to Providence, Rhode Island, and that a group of residents there had generously gathered enough money to ransom him. And then finally, they got word that their daughter Mary... Uh, that she was safe. She had managed to escape by running away with one of the Wampanoag squalls. And uh, within a few days, they were all united together. Two years after being reunited, uh, Mary's husband Joseph died. She eventually remarried, and she passed away in Connecticut in 1711, 35 years after her captivity. So that's the story. What are the lessons? Here are the lessons from this Christian biography. First, faith in the sovereignty of God sustains during times of suffering. Faith in the sovereignty of God sustains during times of suffering. Throughout her entire ordeal, Mary Rowlandson never lost her belief that her captivity and everything that was happening was still ordered by God for His sovereign purposes, and even ultimately for her good. Even though she despaired for her life on several occasions, she knew that ultimately nothing could happen apart from what her God had willed. Uh, Speaking of the night before her first Sunday in captivity, uh, Mary says this, I suddenly remembered how careless I had been of God's holy time, how many Sabbaths I had lost and misspent, How evilly I had walked in God's sight, which lay so close unto my spirit that it was easy for me to see how righteous it was with God to now cut off the thread of my life and to cast me out of his presence forever. Yet the Lord still showed mercy to me. He upheld me, and as he wounded me with one hand, so he healed me with the other. As for the attack on her village, Mary thought it was an act of God's judgment uh, she quoted Amos 3.6, Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord has not done it? She quoted Job 1.12, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. According to Mary, the lesson that God was teaching His people was, quote, We must rely on God Himself, and our whole dependence must be upon Him. And since it was God who had been pleased to bring his people under this judgment, she believed it would be God who would rescue his people in the end. She says that comfortable scripture would often come to my mind. For a moment I have forsaken thee, but with great mercies I will gather thee. Isaiah 54, 7. And then there were two particular examples of sovereign providence that Mary uh, pointed out. First, only a week before the attack on their town, the English army had been marching their way when provisions ran out and the army had to regroup. Had the army continued its forward march, the attack on Lancaster probably would never have happened because there would have been an army there. Quoting Amos 6, Mary says, "...they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph, therefore they shall go captive." it is the lord's doing it should be marvelous in our eyes in other words she said it was the lord who worked this out that our town would be a town that was that was receiving this type of captivity this type of attack and it was god's judgment on us because we were not depending on him we had become dependent on ourselves and then second there was one occasion when the only thing that separated the english army and the wampanoags that were holding mary was a river But the English armies did not come over. They did not attack. And the Indians had crossed the river, but the English did not cross after them. Why not? Mary believed it was because it was not yet in God's timing for her and others to be freed. She says, We were not yet ready for so great a mercy as victory and deliverance. If we had been, God would have found a way for the English to have passed that river, as well as for the Indians with their squalls and children and all their luggage. Oh, that my people had hearkened to me, and Israel had walked in my ways. I should have soon subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. By the way, her record is just replete with Scripture. She makes an observation about her time, and there's a verse that she says, this is where I get this from, that this is what was happening. In all of her pain, even in the loss of her child, Mary never speaks once of accusing God with wrongdoing. Instead, on a tiresome, long day's journey with the group, she says, I remembered Psalm 119.75. I know, O Lord, your judgments are right, and you in your faithfulness have afflicted me. So she found comfort in the sovereignty of God, even in the midst of her, her suffering. Second lesson. The presence of God is a comfort in our suffering presence of God is a comfort in our suffering. So once when crossing a river, uh, Mary managed to make it over on a raft without even getting her foot wet. And since she was already wounded and weak, uh, she felt like getting wet, especially in that cold weather, she thought that would have been the death of her. Right? Reflecting on that, she remembered that God's presence was with her even in those dark days and she took as her own promise Isaiah 43:2 when you pass through the waters I will be with you and when you pass with the rivers through the rivers they shall not overflow you uh, her bible was a great help in reminding her of God's presence with her and that he and his willingness to sustain her after having been permitted to visit her son on one occasion she found her son ill And when she got back to her own camp, she was very troubled for her son. She said, I went up and down, mourning and lamenting. My spirit was ready to sink with the thoughts of my poor children. My son was ill, and I could not but think of his mournful looks, and that there was no Christian friend that was near him to do any office of love for him, either for his soul or his body. And my poor girl, I knew not where she was, neither whether she was sick or well. Or alive or dead, I repaired under these thoughts to my Bible, my great comfort in all that time. And the scripture came to my hand: "Cast your burden upon the Lord, He will sustain thee." Psalm 55:22. On another day when she had hoped to be traveling towards her husband, she was suddenly made by Wesmu to travel the opposite direction from her husband. And she went to her Bible and found great rest in Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. Even when the Bible seemed to fail to comfort her, she would find help in remembering God's presence. So on another occasion she said, I took my Bible to read, but I found no comfort there, neither which many times I was wont to find So easy a thing it is with God to dry up the streams of Scripture comfort from us. Yet I can say that in all my sorrows and afflictions, God did not leave me to have my impatience work towards Himself, as if His ways were unrighteous. But I knew that He was laying upon me less than I deserved. And so in that account, we see that even when the Bible was failing to bring her comfort, Mary recognized God has not left me and his grace is still working in my life. And so there was the truths of God's word, there was the, the sovereignty of God, there was the presence of God that was a comfort to her. Number three, lesson we, we learn here, it is good in times of suffering to recognize the small acts of providence. She recognized the small acts of providence. So, for example, even in the midst of her captivity, Mary constantly recognized the little things that she could see God was doing on her behalf. Often this had to do with food because she was each day trying to figure out how was she going to eat. She was never guaranteed that she would have food the next day. And for the first several days of her captivity, she ate nothing. Uh, the English had sought to starve the Wampanoags by cutting down all their fields of corn. Had they succeeded, Mary and the captives would also have starved. So the fact that the colonists did not succeed in uh, ridding the fields of the Wampanoags of their corn uh, was, she saw, as an act of providence because it ended up providing food for her that they had not succeeded in that endeavor. But she said, The first week of my being among them, I hardly ate anything. The second week... I found my stomach grow very faint for want of something, yet it was very hard to get down their filthy trash. But the third week, though I could think how formerly my stomach would turn against this or that, and I could starve and die before I could eat such things, yet suddenly they were sweet and savory to me. In other words, the things that she was calling trash before, suddenly it wasn't trash anymore. It was, it was quite good, sweet, and savory, when you're hungry enough. Mary had to live off of the kindness of others, hoping each day that someone would share food with her. She learned to live off of ground nuts, roots, and weeds. She said the Indians also ate horse guts and other parts of horses. And on several occasions, her meal was the boiled foot of a horse because that's what they would give to her. On many days, the Indians would completely diminish all of the food they had in the morning. uh, And yet, she said, there always seemed to be something that she could find to eat in the, afternoon. the other aspect of Mary's captivity in which she saw God's providence at work in the little things was in the occasional kindness she would receive from one of the Indians. Uh, though they did not know God, though many of them had personally killed some of the people that she knew and loved, God put it in their hearts, uh, common grace, right, to show kindness towards her. And every time she received kindness from one of the Indians, she saw that as a gift of grace from God's hands and a kind providence. Well, number four, God is fully able to carry his children through affliction. So I'm going to close with this. This is Mary's own words about how God sustained her through her affliction. She said, I have seen the extreme vanity of the world. One hour, I have been in health and wealthy, wanting nothing. But the next hour, I was in sickness and wounds and death, having nothing but sorrow and affliction. Before I knew what affliction meant, I really sometimes thought to wish for it. When I lived in prosperity, when I had the comforts of the world about me, when my relations were around me, when my heart was cheerful and taking little care for anything, and yet seeing many whom I thought were greater than myself under many trials and afflictions and sickness and weakness, poverty, losses, crosses, cares of the world, I would sometimes become jealous lest I should have my portion in this life. Can you imagine, right? She's saying sometimes I was just so happy and content and wealthy and well off that I would look at other people who I admired through their trials and I would say, God, where's my trial? When do I, when do I get to suffer? She said, the scripture would come to my mind, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he scourges every son whom he receives, Hebrews 12, 6. She says, but now I see the Lord had his time to scourge and to chasten me. The portion of some is to have their afflictions by drops. Now one drop, then another drop. But sometimes it's the dregs of the cup. In other words, All at one time, right? The wine of astonishment, like a sweeping rain that leaves no food, did the Lord prepare to be my portion. Affliction I wanted and affliction I had, full measure, pressed down and running over. Yet I see, when God calls a person to anything... And through ever so many difficulties, yet he is fully able to carry them through and to make them see and to say they have been gainers thereby. And I hope I can say in some measure, as David did, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. And so what was the lesson she had learned? Quote, the Lord hath showed me the vanity of these outward things. They are the vanity of vanities, the vexations of spirit. They are but a shadow, a blast, a bubble, things of no continuance. That we must rely on God himself. That our whole dependence must be upon him. That was her lesson. If trouble from smaller matters begin to arise in me, I now have something at hand to check myself with and say, Why am I troubled? It was but the other day. That if I had had the world, I would have given it for my freedom or to be a servant to a Christian. I have learned to look beyond the present and the smaller troubles, to be quieted under them. As Moses said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. So she had learned to say, when the little things today now seem to trouble me, I remember where I was and realize this, this this is nothing It's all meant to teach us that we are to depend on the Lord and the Lord alone. And as David said, at the end, we look back and say, it was good for me that I have been afflicted. Because it's through the affliction that we learn to trust God and God alone. Okay. So there's the story of Mary Rowlandson. And um, how much time? What time is is it? Am I way off? I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Sorry about that, but because uh, I want to say some more, but I'll, I'll hold it I, because she does talk about Native Americans in a way that you're not allowed to talk about them anymore. And anyway, I, I could address that and some of that, but we'll save that for another time. So, okay, let's pray.